Well, hello there, all you bodacious black bears. Welcome to another episode of A Little Greener, a podcast all about nature, conservation, and sustainability. I am one of your hosts, Casey, and I am joined by the incredible Sarah. Hi, Sarah. How are you? Hi, I'm good. I like the choice of bodacious. That's a good adjective. I'm also really sorry that I feel like I've trapped us now into thinking of two adjectives. Well, I was like, oh, no. I wasn't prepared. What can I go in with that's very positive and accurately reflects Sarah's greatness? <laughs> Incredible. We're here. It's fine. <laughs> you don't you don't have to. It's okay. <laughs> well, Sarah, how are you this week? I'm fine this week. I feel like I had I even put in our little outline. I was like nature updates from this week, but I didn't write down what my nature updates were. So do you remember what it is? No, I sure don't. I don't remember. Something was so last week, you know, we didn't have a a challenge for the week or anything like that. We were just encouraging folks to to take a break, take care of themselves and to spend some time outside if they could. And I feel like I did that and I had something to share and it's gone. It's totally gone. So if I think of it, I'll, I'll jump back in, but otherwise I'm good. Same old, same old, nothing particularly remarkable this week. You hanging in there? Yeah. Hanging in there. Sorry. I'm like itching my eyes here looking like I'm tearing up, but no, uh, (laughs) it's it. We had our hopefully knock on wood last snow this weekend, ah. which came kind of unexpectedly. I mean, it's March. March just plays with your feelings. So last mm-hmm. week was like really warm and everyone's coming in asking for pansies. And can I put this out yet? And we're like, well, I mean, I'm not going to tell you, no, you can't <laughs> have flowers, but geez, it's, it's early March expect the unexpected. Uh, and then of course this, this weekend they were like, Oh, maybe like an inch of rain with snow. And then it was like, no, it accumulated into <laughs> like four inches of snow. So that was, I, I don't dislike snow. It has been an extremely mild winter here. So I I did want like one last snow. I just wanted it back in February. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So now we're in the middle of March and, uh, but I, because it has been warm, so many birds are out. And so there's been lots of good things. There's a nesting pair of Canada geese in our yard. Uh, less excited about that, but I have complicated feelings yeah. about dealing with it, but ginger chased them off their nest the other day. So perhaps, perhaps the sight of a dog will make might it have dealt with a, it for you. Yeah. Maybe <laughs> almost always we have geese and then they'll have a bunch of goslings. And then over the course of the summer, they'll get picked off by foxes or snapping mm-hmm. turtles and things like that. Um, so I'm not sure if like, I'm really causing, if, if we were to go and addle the eggs, as sometimes people will suggest to reduce Canada geese populations, I don't even know how much that's going to do that the predators wouldn't take care of themselves. Right. And I can't tell which one's sadder. So. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm letting nature take its course slash ginger take her course. Yeah, there you go. I tell you what, I don't miss this season of living in the Midwest. Yes, you a are a snowbird. <laughs> yeah, I remember. Well, I'm just a just a, a permanent warmth now. That's true. Much. But uh, yeah, I remember it, when it snowed on Easter a few oh, yeah. years ago. Remember that? Mm-hmm. Didn't we get like eight inches of snow on Easter or something crazy like that? 
I th- everyone talks about like the blizzard of whatever year. And I don't know. One time in high school, there was a deep snow and that's the only one I remember. <laughs> Fair enough. I it did get down to like in the forties here the other night, I think. So that's, Oh yeah. That's, that's, uh, that's Florida, Florida cold Florida winter for you. All right. Well, with, with all of that said, we want to look ahead really quick to, to next week, right? This is going to be next week. We are celebrating our 50th episode slash a year of working on a little greener. It's been a year. That's kind of crazy. I don't feel like it's, I don't know. All of life is moving too fast, but it's been, we have, I feel like accomplished a lot with 50 episodes. That's, I don't know that I've been dedicated long-term to anything (laughs) that requires this much work. So seriously, I, I definitely would not have carried through uh, without you, Casey. So I'm glad, I'm glad we embarked on this journey together. Me too. A year ago, it's been a lot of fun and we look forward to, to lots more. We're not planning on stopping uh, anytime soon. So with that said, perhaps by the time you are all listening to this, we'll have posted already on Facebook, probably, maybe Instagram. We'll see how it goes. Some questions for you as we look back on the past year. We want to kind of he- hear your thoughts. We would love your your opinions and your feedback on some of the episodes that we've done so far, because that's what we're going to be talking about next week. We'll kind of take a look back, talk about some things talk about how we've been impacted by these episodes and we want to hear from you as well but also looking ahead obviously you're free to do this at any time but we're going to put out there a specific spot to put in any thoughts ideas or suggestions what you want to hear from us going forward into the next year and beyond so even if you don't have a full-fledged like I think this would make a great topic for an episode, even if it's just a question that you've wondered about or some kind of starting point for a topic, don't be afraid to share that with us. Yeah. And even if you've got something like, this is my favorite part of the show, Mm -hmm. or I really like this, but maybe it's too long. (laughs) Whatever sort of suggestions we're looking to grow our community and and expand our impact. And we really want to understand kind of what impact we're having on our audience and what things are really the the most impactful for you. And we appreciate you. We appreciate you Thanks sticking with us. Yeah, yeah. For the past year. So it's been a lot of fun and hopefully you all have enjoyed it too. So look for those posts on social media if you haven't already. Again, we'll probably already have them up by the time you're listening to this. But uh, so tonight, Casey, we're going to be talking about food and feeding or not feeding wildlife. So my question for you this week is what is not necessarily your favorite food, but what is your biggest like junk food indulgence? What is the thing that you're like, I know this is bad for me, but I just, I'm going to eat it anyway type of thing. Uh, it is probably Ben and Jerry's ice cream. Ooh. Uh, so specifically Andrew, Ben and Jerry's. Well, Andrew and I, Ben and Jerry's is one of those companies that has made some very like public stance mm-hmm. that we, Andrew and I really appreciate that most companies aren't willing to kind of push the line on more 
controversial, but Mm -hmm. justice-related topics. The environment is one of them. Their packaging is um, FSC certified. They do cage-free eggs, which is kind of fake, but it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But they do lots of of stuff. So we've really committed to eating mostly exclusively Ben and Jerry's. And that used to be sort of a like, okay, we'll get Ben and Jerry's. It's expensive. Right. We'll only get it like once a month. And that way we'll also eat less ice cream because you don't need ice cream to survive. But it very quickly became, I had a hard week. Let's get Ben and Jerry's Mm -hmm. and became a like $10 a week sort of uh, expenditure. So that is our indulgence. It's also like over a thousand calories per (laughs) pint. And um, that only takes about two sittings for us. So uh, that would be my indulgence. I'm a huge Doritos fan as well. So if they're on the table, then it's happening. Is there a favorite Ben and Jerry's flavor? Um, somewhere between chocolate therapy and thick mint, thick mint's new. And it's got like a, a hard layer of chocolate on the top. You got a crack open and it's got like tiny little thin mint, like cookies. It's ridiculous. Okay. <laughs> I was about to say, like, I, I also appreciate Ben and Jerry's as a company, but I don't, I don't buy it because I am cheap and yeah. I just enjoy ice cream in general. So I just kind of get whatever's, whatever's cheapest usually, but you may have just, uh, added yeah. to my grocery list. <laughs> this <laughs> this is not an ad. <laughs> no, it's not. Unless. <laughs> <laughs> hey, um, no, uh, good, good choices. Good choices. You know, mine probably. So I have, yes. I have a food and a drink and the drink is Pepsi. I've done so much better. I'm so proud of you. Honestly, I, I re- <laughs> like there was a time we may have talked about this on the podcast before, but there was a time I would do like five cans a day. And then it cut way, way down. I dropped it back to one a day. And then I wasn't even drinking any during the week. And I would only have one on the weekends. I'm sorry to say that I've backslid a little bit. You get up early now. I get up real early now and I have long days. So I do tend to drink at least one every work day. And sometimes like today I'll have two. Um, still not as bad as I used to be though. And I rarely will have them on the weekends. And then it's potato chips, just plain potato chips. I love them. And there's nothing that's good (laughs) about, you know, like there's just the grease and the salt, (laughs) the greasier and the saltier, the better. I don't go in for any of that baked, whatever. Uh, No, 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 Honestly, Sarah, in the time I've known you, you have conquered more like fe- both fears and addictions than <laughs> I think most people I know. You've like reduced your Pepsi consumption. You went to the dentist, even though you were nervous about it. I'm just so proud of you. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. I, I, I need to uh, get back on it down here, but but yeah, those are my two. So we, we do this. We have things that we know that are not good for us that we still eat. We're going to talk a little bit about wildlife and some of the things that maybe they are eating that aren't so good for them, uh, what impacts it can have and what we can do about it. So stick around for our discussion. All right, so tonight we are chatting all about feeding 
or not feeding rather the wildlife. And initially when Casey and I talked about doing this as a podcast episode, I was like, I don't know, Casey, like I was thinking about this, but is this too obvious? <laughs> like, is this, I mean, people know we see these signs everywhere. You're not supposed to feed wildlife. Uh, so I feel like on the surface, this seems like a pretty simple, obvious thing, but in reality, it's kind of a, a complex situation, or at least that there are complex things that can result from feeding wildlife. And it's certainly still a very common widespread issue that I see on a daily basis of people uh, giving wild animals human food. So we're going to talk about kind of what the general impacts of feeding wildlife is. And uh, I have a couple of myths that we're going to talk about, uh, maybe do a little myth busting along the way. And Casey, I want to start off with talking about why it is that people feed wildlife. Before we get into general reasons, though, I'm just curious from you, have you ever intentionally fed wildlife beyond bird feeding. We'll talk, maybe we can touch on briefly why uh, we're sort of differentiating our discussion tonight from putting out a bird feeder, for example. Uh, so outside of feeding the birds, have you ever fed wildlife? Yes. Uh, I can think of two notable instances uh, on Princeton University's campus. They have black squirrels, which are very cool looking. And they're very used to college students feeding mm -hmm. them. So when I went for my tour in high school, I did feed one a Dorito, which we just talked about <laughs> earlier. And I got a picture really close to it. And I was a big squirrel fan. So yeah. at the time I was like, no regrets. Now I'm like, oh, <laughs> I don't think that spicy nacho cheese is really what they're supposed to be eating. But yeah, so that's one. The other one is a interesting, different sort of situation. We had baby foxes um, in our backyard that had mange and it was a bad year after, <laughs> after college. And my dad was like, well, they've got mange. I guess they're going to die. And for some reason I decided that that was in my, uh, like things I wanted to control when everything felt like they were out of control. And I was like, no, <laughs> if you're not, not sure mange is like a parasite, I think that goes underneath the skin, but it's so like irritating to the animal that they basically scratch their fur off and then are unable to sleep and concentrate and has lethal effects. So I ordered a like medication off of the internet <laughs> from a coyote and fox uh, rescue group that was for demanging them. And I bought chicken and I injected it into the chicken. I remember you talking yes, about yep. this. Yeah. And I gave, I it can't remember them. if we talked about it on the podcast before, I don't or not, either. but I remember, I remember this story. That's right. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if it's the same dewormer that some people were taking like yeah. during the COVID thing. Um, but I, at the time could order it with a donation to a coyote rescue in Arizona. So apparently not that well regulated, but in that case, at least one of those babies survived. I like to think I had something to do with it. I put mm -hmm. it basically under the porch where they had been hanging out. And, uh, that was one of those like weird specifically to try and help them situations. But I'm also sure during my childhood, I fed many an animal that I just don't remember. Yeah. That's, I actually, as I was thinking about this I, or, and, and listening to you, I actually don't 
recall intentionally like any I remember issues. feeding bread to birds I I, I do have, have a memory vague yeah. memory of that as a child as well which we will talk about but I don't remember like any of the specifics where I was who I was with so now part of me is like I'm just making this <laughs> up it didn't really happen a collective memory <laughs> yeah, all of us have <laughs> but I I do feel like I probably did that at some point I feel like I probably did you know toss snacks to birds at some point I but I don't I don't have like you have those are two very interesting specific memories that you have that I think highlight a couple of general reasons that I think are pretty common for why folks do feed wildlife but yeah I can't I can't other than this vague recollection of feeding ducks and geese bread I can't think of a specific Sarah just to clarify for the listener today are we talking about feeding in general or are we talking about feeding specifically animals human food mostly this is going to be feeding animals human food and that's one of the differences that I want to clarify like when we talk about backyard bird feeding for example and we, Casey did a great episode on birds and we talked a lot about backyard bird feeders in that episode. Gosh, that was like episode four three. or something, three, right? Yeah. Way back, way back at the beginning. Uh, but it's, it's a great one. So you can listen to that if you, if you haven't heard it. There was a time when experts recommended against even putting out bird feeders. Now there's for the, still a split in like the yes. rescue community, but for the most part, people are yes. pretty on board with it being okay. Yes. But the stipulations to that are that you are putting things out that are appropriate for the birds in your area. So you are getting actual bird seed, bird food, or putting out human food items that are Fruits known and to be yeah. healthy. Yeah. For these birds. So you're doing your due diligence, you're doing your research and you're putting out food that is appropriate. And you're also being responsible with the care and upkeep in terms of keeping them clean, like cleaning up after the seed, cleaning out the feeders and you're monitoring for health issues and, and those types of things. So those are maybe a couple of distinctions. So for the most part, yeah, we're going to be talking about feeding wildlife, human food, Although there's, there's maybe a little bit of an overlap in a gray, gray area there as well that we can kind of hit on as we go along. So with that said, Casey, this is a widespread thing. I really do see it almost every day. Why do we do this? What are some reasons you think that people want to toss their food to wildlife? Um, having watched many a two bold squirrel approach guests at zoos. <laughs> Same with um, geese. Uh, I think part of it is that they see these animals looking at food and think that they're helping by feeding them, that they're hungry and that this is helpful. Um, also, I think that there's this sort of snow white syndrome that we have where we're like, if I sing and all the birds answer, then I am one with nature. And communing and then, with them. Yes, we are. Yes, these are my friends and um, transcends species. So there's a certain amount of like connection that you you want to have. And then I think just like there's there's something there is something kind of magical about being up close to an animal that is wild, not like 
a cat or a dog, but something that exists in a completely different realm to a certain extent than we do. And being able to have an interaction that is positive and not scary, at least in your point of view. Mm -hmm. And for me, I got a picture with a black squirrel eating a Dorito. (laughs) And that was enough for 14 year old me to be very pleased with myself. (laughs) Uh, Retrospectively, not great, but like, I think that a lot of those things play into the desire to feed animals. Yeah, 100%. I think that was really well said. I think that, yeah, there's, it's just a sort of, it brings you, it brought 14 year old Casey joy. Like it It brings you (laughs) happiness in that moment. Right. But I think a lot of times folks have really good intentions. Like you say, they think they're helping. Uh, I was faced with temptation not too long ago. I was sitting outside in a, in a public space, just having lunch outdoors. And there was a bird. I think it was just a young grackle. I thought I had a picture, but I couldn't find it. But I mean, this, this dude was bold. Like he would have hopped right up onto my little cardboard food container thing that I had, uh, if I had let him, but he just, I don't know how a bird can have facial expression, but this thing was looking at me like, he was never going to get a bite to eat if I didn't give him anything. Uh, I held out. I didn't. But uh, but there is this this sort of feeling like, oh, I'm going to do a good a good service if I give my food to this animal. Um, and then, yeah, I think connection is a really big one, both connection with the animals. And I mean, you and I have worked in zoo settings and we know that even even with these wild animals not being in their own natural habitat, that it is really powerful. Yeah. And I think that also that's another sort of situation where you might feed Mm -hmm. quote unquote wildlife is in sort of a sanctioned setting Mm -hmm. where maybe like at a zoo, you're feeding a carrot or a twig to a giraffe, or maybe you're feeding um, ducks pellets for them. Those are sort of sanctioned with some of the elements that we're going to talk about in the future in mind. Um, but yeah, it, it really does like see the look on a kid's face when a giraffe wraps its tongue around this carrot and pulls it back into its mouth. There's just like this delight and connection that happens. Um, but I also think that there's a certain level of that, which is the zoo knows that people want this sort of interaction and how, how is the zoo framing it? in a way that like, is this encouraging this behavior in the wild? Because this, in this one instance, it was really positive for the animal versus is it something that is conservation oriented? So, yeah, I think that's a tough line to walk and I'll share a study later on that I think maybe touches a little bit on that. I'm going to apologize real fast too, because dog has decided it's squeaky toy time. So (laughs) apologize for any background, uh, toe tapping or frog squeaking that you might might be hearing. Um, yeah, so we'll talk a little bit more about that kind of side of things as well. Um, I also think that, I want to just touch on real quick too. There are a lot of, I kind of had these categorized just as intentional feeding, which is a bad category because almost everything that we're talking about is intentional feeding, but there might be reasons where say professionals might step in. We talked about the manatee die-offs not too long Mm -hmm. ago here in Florida where fish and wildlife finally decided, Hey, no, we are actually like it would normally, it's, 
it would not be permitted for me to go out and feed manatees, but they are going to step in and actually deliver food to these manatees. Tourism, similar situation to the zoos that we were just talking about. There might be tourism instances where uh, animals are intentionally fed, not just at the zoo, but even sometimes wild situations, there might be uh, animal tourism organizations that feed wildlife. Uh, hunters will sometimes put out food, and this is where we're blurring the lines a little bit. These might not be so much feeding human food, but specifically putting out food for wildlife, um, using camera traps that have lures associated with them to actually attract animals. So th those all might be in instances where food, human or otherwise, is put out specifically to feed animals. And then there's a whole lot of unintentional wildlife feeding that goes on too that we might not think about as us feeding wildlife, but things like putting out our trash cans, feeding our pets outside, even crops. Again, that's a little bit outside of the scope of what we're going to talk about tonight, but is another instance where animals might be getting human food. So there's lots of potential avenues here. I do think that one of the biggest motivations are people wanting to help or wanting to get closer to have that, you know, magical, magical moment, that black squirrel photo opportunity uh, to get up close to wildlife, um, you know, akin to when folks tap on the glass, you know, with for animals at the zoo, it's not a great thing to do. We don't like to see it, but I think a lot of times their motivation is, hey, I, I want to have an experience. Like I want to see this animal up close. I want to see it move. I want right. to see it do something. Uh, and so folks might want to feed um, for, for that reason too. So given that, you know, we want people to feel connection to wildlife. We want them to enjoy wildlife. Why is this prohibited? What are the problems with giving food to animals? So we're going to address some of the dangers. And I want to start with the one that maybe should be the most obvious, but I feel like maybe is one that gets talked about less or in less detail, maybe. And that's the nutrition <laughs> aspect of it. And we're talking about food here, but uh, I think this is one that, that folks sometimes ignore, maybe because we see it so often. So I, I'm going to go back to your, your squirrel and Dorito example. And I didn't know you were going to talk about that. So thanks. Thanks for giving me. Giving yeah, it's a nice this, little nugget to bite on there. <laughs> uh, but I, we see that all the time, right? I think squirrels on, I think college campus squirrels are a thing. The, the Purdue squirrels were definitely a thing as well. Um, so we're just used to that. Gulls maybe, you know, with French fries or whatever, raccoons. Eating I was all the just, food. you know, like squirrels, you're like, yeah, acorns. I don't know that I could tell you exactly what seagulls eat because I would say French fries. Yeah. <laughs> the number one source of food because that's our interaction with them. Exactly. I had a kid ask me the other day, what do raccoons eat? And I was <laughs> My immediate like thought that popped into my head was trash, yeah. <laughs> garbage. Uh, so yeah, so it's just so prevalent. We see it all the time that I don't think we necessarily think that it has any impact uh, on these animals. And I will be perfectly honest with you too, as I was reading into this, I couldn't find a whole lot of specific information on, on any specifics 
related to what these human foods could potentially cause in a lot of these different animals. And some animals really do have a more flexible adaptive system. Right. Maybe the raccoons are okay. I don't know, but. Well, I feel like there's no way to design a good experiment um, without being very unethical. <laughs> I mean, like there, it's the same thing reason why we don't really know what feral cats do most of the time, mm-hmm. unless you strap a camera to the animal, it's very hard to figure it out. And also, I guess, unless you're sampling stomach remains of, of animals that have died. Right. So it's, yeah, it's just hard to kind of tell the long-term impacts. We still yeah. argue about the long-term impacts that certain foods have on human health. So I just don't know that it's easy True. to generalize that anyway. Yeah. Let's, I, I think it's safe to say that like, uh, the thing Oreos isn't good for you and it's not good for the raccoon either. There, well, there, and there are a couple of specific examples and I wanted to use an example from our domesticated species real quick, just to kind of illustrate how even though some people might argue, well, we do eat these things. Like we eat all of these foods. It's not going to be that bad for these animals. Even animals that seem similar enough have specific nutritional needs that are going to differ from other species. So if you look at cats and dogs, we buy these pellets or cans from the grocery store and feed them to our dogs and cats they probably look similar to us. They smell similar to us. We probably think that they have really similar diets and digestive systems. But if you solely fed your cat dog food, it's going to have disastrous health effects for them. So we know that cats are carnivores. Cats are what's called obligate carnivores. They have to have a meat-based diet. Dogs are actually omnivores, so they'll eat a little bit of everything. Cat food has a much higher protein content than dog food. Dog food is also lacking in specific nutrients that cats do not produce and have to take in um, from their diet. So it can lead to anything from lethargy and hair loss to reproductive issues, heart issues, and blindness in cats if they were to get a canine diet instead of a feline diet. So that's just one example of how nutrition and balance of of nutrition can make a big difference from species to species. So just because we can eat something and it's safe for us doesn't mean it's safe for animals. If you're a dog owner, you better know that as well, that your dog can't eat grapes or raisins, you know, or a host of other things. Right. And I even think like sometimes dog food commercials are very misleading. Like they're like, oh, your dog is a wolf. And so you expect them like our very basic understanding of wolves is that they eat little red riding hoods, maybe not that they are also eating blueberries and also eating things. And we've also found that grain-free diets that are kind of promoted as natural actually have bad heart impacts on, on dogs. So yeah, having these kind of preconceived notions about particular animal diets has different effects, but we also know that when we try and create this like synthetic diet that is basically our junk food for wildlife, it's not going to be hitting all of their natural. It's more complicated than maybe you think. Also, I would like to point out one time I was looking up feeding my bird, Luna, who's a parrotlet. She's like three inches tall. 
foods. And they're like, well, you can feed her grapes, but remember one grape for her is like 300 grapes for you. <laughs> so like one Oreo to a raccoon is a lot more. Oreos. Right. <laughs> so body size does matter. And their metabolism is different depending on the species. Yeah. So all of that to say, even though we can't tell you what exactly the impact of that Oreo is on that raccoon, there's a pretty good idea that it's not what they should be eating normally. And so we don't know. So because we don't know, and we can't say exactly how all of these things are going to impact them. Hey, it's best to just let them go. Let's not. (laughs) Their normal diet. Yes, exactly. So, so that's one way to look at it. There have also been studies and I didn't read through these actual studies. I was just reading through an article summary, uh, but they have looked at issues uh, in in species of wildlife they found in both mule deer and in bears that are getting a diet that is more rich in human food or supplemented by humans that uh, it changes the microbiome. It changes the bacteria in their gut. And especially for an animal like a deer, um, that's going to maybe be more heavily dependent on that uh, microbiome to help them digest and break down and get their nutrients. Uh, that's, that's huge. That's a big impact. So we are, have been able to notice some changes, uh, because of animals getting things that are not appropriate for them. Um, and I do want to do a couple of quick sort of nutrition related fact or fiction. So Casey, yes, I have a couple of things to, to ask you, see if you've heard of these or familiar with these. Have you heard that we've talked about feeding bread to waterfowl? Have you heard that feeding bread to ducks or geese kills them? And do you know if that is a myth or a fact? I have heard this and I have not told people it in such strong terms so much as don't do it. Mm-hmm. And my understanding is that it mm, two maybe thinks, and I don't know if I'm right, <laughs> One is that it gives them a false sense of being full on nutritious food when they're not full on nutritious food. And two, something about bread can promote bacteria growth, maybe. And those are the maybe not true things that I know of. (laughs) You know, I actually forgot. I meant to look into this a little further. I think there is something about if bread doesn't get eaten And like, Mm, or if you've got like stale bread sitting in the water that it can lead to harmful growth in the water. I didn't research into that though. So don't quote me 100% on that. But yeah, I think there is something to the fact of they can sort of fill up on this food that isn't nutritionally complete to them. So I don't know that it's necessarily like a false sense of feeling full. These... These geese and ducks don't know what is nutritious to them or not necessarily. They're like, hey, it's food. I'm going to eat it. They're giving me food. Like, this is easy. I'm going to eat it. Maybe it tastes good to them. I don't know. Uh, Maybe this is like the time I ate 18 Oreos in a Hot Pocket for dinner in college. And I was like, oh, this is why I wasn't supposed to do that. I just thought it was food. Maybe that's how they feel. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) I don't know. Uh, But I think what this can lead to uh, ultimately, basically the deal is when I was younger and I heard this, that feeding bread to ducks and geese will kill them, I just imagined it being like a for sure, if not instantaneous, like a definite, like I f- fed this 
duck bread and that duck is going to die now. <laughs> like, because, like, um, but what it actually is, is it's going to lead to a nutrient, nutrient imbalance for them if they are getting too much of this bread compared to other things. So you can find people that argue about this, even experts to some extent, but basically if a duck eats a little bit of bread, it's probably going to to be fine. It's not that big of a deal. But when you've got people going out constantly every day, families going out and doing this, you don't know how much bread, you know, that duck is really getting. And if it is eating too much of that, which is just not nutritionally very useful to them, it can lead to imbalance. And high caloric diets for these animals can lead to something called angel wing. And it's called this, I guess, because it impacts the growth of the wing in particular, I guess the last joint in the wing and it causes it to the wings to kind of turn out at an awkward angle. I should have put a picture of it on here for you, Casey, but basically the the ends of those wings are sort of turning out. The flight feathers are more pointing out so it can impact both their ability to fly and the insulation of those feathers. So ultimately that's probably going to be fatal to them. So this is a, okay, so a it does true statement that. depending yeah. on how you look at it. It's not In that long term a piece of bread is going to kill them. But if they're getting too much of that, this is a problem, a, a big problem that can result. So once again, because I don't know how many people are going to go out and feed this duck, I say just don't don't do it. Um, or at least and we'll talk about other reasons why not to feed ducks later, too. All right. So second, uh, that was one myth. I do have a second one. So this maybe related to you, Casey, have you heard that feeding birds uncooked rice makes their stomachs explode? And is this a myth or a fact? Oh, I sure have heard this. Um, we even had seagulls in Pottstown, Pennsylvania, like go away seagulls. The, the ocean's two hours away, but they were in there. And I, I feel like this was like, people would say this all the time. It was an urban legend within my high school that people would like, oh, I went to the beach and fed the seagulls rice so the, their stomachs would explode, which felt like the ultimate identifier of a mean kid. Yeah, like, for real. You're mean. <laughs> I, I guess that's another reason people field wildlife is to make their stomachs explode. Um, now, I, when I saw this on the outline, I was like, maybe I need to reevaluate my knowledge of this because why would that happen? I like something about starch is the <laughs> truism that was in there, but like the idea of boiling rice doesn't really like, I don't know. I think it's because it, it would, it, they would, the argument what, or the thing was that it would absorb the liquids in the stomach and then the rice would expand in the stomach. There's the just a rice cooker inside <laughs> every seagull, just steaming some rice. No, <laughs> but this in our bellies. What? I, I had the same thought. I was like, how did we, how did we ever think this was a thing? If you stop and think about it for a minute, but it is, I, I thought this was true. And I, at some stage of life was like, oh, you can't throw rice at weddings. That's going to kill the birds. And, and that sort of thing, guys, this is not true. See, I can still feel my future self yelling at my children never to feed rice to seagulls, even though I now know it's not true. You still shouldn't, but still. No, again, other reasons uh, 
where you know you wouldn't want to just randomly go scattering rice out for birds but it just it's not going to to kill them uh, you know some birds probably forage on rice out in the fields as well and uh that's <laughs> is part of their diet I couldn't find where this myth started, but I did find that it was sort of got upped in popularity in uh, 1985. I think there was actually legislature proposed in Connecticut to ban this because of the detrimental effects on wildlife. And this person was like saying that they had experts in the field say that this was true. And ornithologists were like, no, we didn't. (laughs) And then it was in an Ann Landers column as well, where she said the same thing, but uh, it's not true. We the bold probably, stance to go pro seagull, right? honestly. We probably would say, well, I don't know. It wasn't, I don't know that it was seagulls per se. It was so, like songbirds. More. Oh, okay. Yeah. I only ever heard it when it came to seagulls. Oh, really? No, yes. I, I'd heard of it more as just a general bird thing. But there you go. Rest assured. You're fine. It won't make their stomachs explode. It's better than them eating plastic. There you go. So, okay, again, reason, problem number one, nutrition, nutritional imbalances. We don't want to be giving animals things that are not appropriate for them and their digestive system. Uh, A second potential fallout from feeding wildlife is the spread of disease slash incurring injuries from animals. And this might be animal to animal. So I think we mentioned this on the episode on cats as invasive species, but I don't think we really, I don't think we ever really came back around to it, but this is something that we might see for folks, again, trying to be helpful that put out food for these colonies of feral cats. They're like, oh, you know, look at, look at all these poor cats. I want to do something to help them. They put out these sort of communal food bowls. This is going to attract all of those cats and other wildlife to that area. And that just creates a sort of cesspool source, easy transmission of disease. I was also reading about a study kind of looking at this. They looked at um, both cat food and also spilled food from bird feeders, actually, um, and kind of looked at the incidence of other wildlife so things then they would see things like skunks and raccoons primarily um and the presence of cat food in particular really upped the number of quote-unquote unwanted animal visitors and also escalated aggression between them as well so it can lead to illness and injury between animals but also if we start getting into people trying to hand feed wildlife it can lead to injury to people as well and potential disease transmission. Yeah, zoonotic disease is no joke, guys. You do not want rabies or whatever else that animal that you're trying to feed kindly out of the palm of your hand because remember your friends and your Snow White and mm-hmm. they would never bite you. Snow White would have a lot of diseases. <laughs> well, maybe not her specifically, but, but she had a lot of birds pooping in her house, so probably. <laughs> Oh man, if fairy tales were <laughs> the real world, Snow White would have rabies and yeah, a lot of the fleas <laughs> and everything else. Um, yeah, that's it's true though. I 
Casey, I'm glad you 14 year old, you made it off injury free, but a 2021 national park service post on Facebook. I don't have the data, the numbers behind this, but their post stated that scroll bites were one of the most common injuries that they saw in parks. And you probably don't have to look too hard. You've probably heard stories about the effects of injuries uh, from from people trying to feed wildlife. I just happened to pull up this gem about a squirrel in the UK that bit 18 people. I think it was over the course of two days. This potentially maybe was a squirrel that somebody was keeping as a pet and then released. Not really sure. Either way, had clearly become very habituated to getting food from people. And it went on this sort of biting spree. And sadly, which we'll we'll talk more about this, but it had to be euthanized because they called animal control to handle this squirrel. And uh, it is illegal, apparently, then to re-release them once they're caught. So this squirrel had to be ultimately euthanized as a result of these bites. And we will get into that in further detail. Also came across one from back in the 70s about a child that was gored and killed by a mule deer that was trying to get a sandwich from this kid. And I don't know all of the details of this. The, the one thing that I read made it sound like this kid was not trying to feed that deer, but the kid had a sandwich and the deer had some at some point along the way understood that this was potential food uh, and so it wound up actually in the death of the kid. So yeah, the disease is no joke. The potential for injury is no joke. I've actually seen somebody get bit by a squirrel Oh no! going out trying to feed them and thinking it was all fun and games and they, they wound up getting bit. So, and, and these are examples that you're giving of herbivores. <laughs> these are not even bears. And anecdotally, we know that bears are attracted to, uh, areas where there's food around, especially where people are feeding them and can obviously cause major injuries to humans. Um, I'm sure the same is true for coyotes and other things that have canine teeth rather than just, um, squirrels and deer. That's, that's the light end of the spectrum. Yeah, absolutely. Still danger. Yeah. So, so let's jump down to, to that a little bit. Cause the, the last kind of big category that I have on here for potential impacts of feeding wildlife is that it is going to impact their behavior as well. And this is something that we do still need more research on. I think there's a lot of sort of anecdotal yeah. evidence around this. I, I think that we, we, would love to collect more data and see some more numbers on this. But one example that I thought was kind of interesting that I wasn't super familiar with um, speaking on those bears is a study back from 2019 that showed that bears that had a diet rich in human food, it actually just changed their hibernation that they showed on average or I don't know if it was on average or if it was up to, uh, I apologize. I'll have to back, go back and double check that, but we'll link to the article as well, but a uh, 50 day shorter hibernation. And I think maybe be- they were saying perhaps because of that shorter hibernation, more quickly aging cells 
which I thought Whoa. was interesting. So like, I guess your, your chromosomes, I, I, this is going way too far back for me to remember, but they have these sort of end caps on them called telomeres. And they were finding those to be very shortened in these bears that had the diet rich in human food. What? Who Whoa. knew? I don't know what all, of, what all of the impacts of that are, but again, uh, there you go. It's just kind of a, an interesting thing. I, I think like relating to bear hibernation for people who don't know, bear hibernation is very flexible. There's typically not a set amount of days that bears are hibernating. It really depends on kind of the resources available. So probably, and I can't say definitely, but probably the bears were experiencing a greater availability of resources because they were being fed or had access mm-hmm. to that food and therefore didn't need to sleep as much, but who that's unnatural. Yeah. Yeah. It's unnatural and potentially has other effects too right. that we're not aware of. So that was interesting. There was another study that uh, on macaques. And I think the goal of this was they were actually looking at whether the social kind of structure or hierarchy or relationships between the macaques had any impact on how much human food these mm-hmm. macaques were taking. But they also ended up noticing kind of the reverse that when these macaques were spending time by the roadside where they are getting all of these free snacks from people intentionally feeding them, they had less social interaction with each other. They had fewer social interactions. And so that was really just an observation from the study. And they said that, you know, we don't know what that results in, but that could impact their relationships and behavior and, and all of that further. Um, so I thought that was kind of interesting too, just a lot more to be explored there. Um, but I think ultimately the, the thing that we know that happens when these animals are fed is the simplest one. They know that they can get food from humans, so they are going to seek out human interaction more or not be as afraid to approach humans, which can lead to dangerous situations for both people and animals. Bears are kind of the poster child for this, at least in this part of the world. The macaques I mentioned, certainly uh, across their range. Also, there's a a whole bunch of dynamics around human wildlife interaction with them. Um, But just as, as kind of an interesting note on how this has changed over the years, in the early 1900s, were you familiar with this, Casey? They had bears, they had like garbage pits, garbage dumps in Yellowstone, right? So the trash would end up in these pits. Bears, of course, naturally were like, hey, I smell food. I'm going to go get, so they, bears would go and kind of forage through these garbage pits. It was so popular. It was such an attraction for people. They would actually put bleachers around these pits and put things out there intentionally for these bears uh, so that guests could come and watch. The last garbage dump, I guess, wasn't closed until 1970, which is kind of interesting. But that's just kind of an illustration for how the mindset has sort of changed over the years. And now we understand how much of a problem this sort of thing causes and how this does cause the bears to to get too close uh, to people. And you've probably heard the term nuisance bear 
before it's one of my least <laughs> like it makes my heart hurt because this is a bear just doing what a bear needs to do right these bears need to find food if they've been accustomed to getting food from people that's they're just doing what they need to do to survive but unfortunately what happens is because that's a dis- dangerous situation that bear at best is going to have to be relocated which is disruptive in and of itself but oftentimes they're just going to be killed um, they're going to be euthanized which not only takes is not fair to that bear takes numbers out of their population, can also leave orphaned bears uh, and a whole host of other problems. This is not just bears that this happens to. Obviously, I mentioned the story with the squirrel. Um, Depending on where you live, you know, this might happen with deer or raccoons or whatever, where these animals have to be trapped and oftentimes killed. So dingoes is another one in Australia where they've actually had, they had culling uh, of of dingoes in certain areas. There's been culling of deer in parts of Canada as well, in part due to this habituation to human food. So it's not just something we say. (laughs) This has very real, potentially serious impacts for wildlife. Yeah. I have a memory of being a kid and I, it was somewhere in New York with my grandparents and we were by a body of water and there's a whole bunch of ducks there. And I remember we, I don't know if we were there to feed the ducks, but I do remember when we opened the minivan door, a duck jumped into our car Mm. with us and that's not a normal behavior. They should be pretty afraid of humans. They should not be thinking that we're an attractive place to be going uh, on a ride with. So it's definitely, you've probably seen it. If you've seen a, a park squirrel approaching you a little too close. I actually think they're kind of intimidating, especially in the Midwest where there's giant fox squirrels. They're so big. Oh my goodness. Um, So, and those are squirrels. Like there are so many different types of wildlife all around the world. And especially if you're a tourist in that area, you might not see the negative consequences of it because you might be the one enjoying the connection element, not seeing what the long-term impacts are on that population or on, uh, human wildlife interactions. Yeah. I mean, that's a good point is that we, you know, we talk about those macaques in some parts of the world, you know, these macaques that you might throw food to as a tourist, like they break into people's houses. (laughs) Right. <laughs> so there are, you know, it's, yeah, that's, that's a really good point that you're not necessarily seeing uh, all of the consequences of the interaction. I think as with so many things we talk about, that's, that's the biggest reason, you know, we see this moment where we're like, oh, this bird is going to be so happy if I give it a piece of my food and, you know, we don't see the potential disease that results from that or, you know, the change in behavior that's going to lead to harmful consequences or whatever. So we just want to keep that in mind. We, we, we want to feed these animals thinking that we're helping, but we need to remember that feeding more often than not leads to negative consequences. I did find a kind of interesting article. This is from almost 10 years ago now, uh, but it was, they kind of proposed this framework to evaluate wildlife feeding. And they kind of had broken it up into sort of more broader categories than what we talked about at the beginning. But um, I think they looked at tourism, hunting, research, and then, oh, I can't remember what the last 
category was, but that covered mostly what we were talking about the, the, you know, the trash or just the feeding of birds at restaurants or, or whatever the case may be, and kind of had a step-by-step framework for evaluating what was appropriate versus not appropriate. So we'll link to that as well, if you want to read uh, a little more about that. And that's what I got for you. Casey, any, any last thoughts before we go wrap up? I guess I didn't expect this to be as personal as it ended up being, but I mean, everything from the myths that we were busting all the way down to just like examples in my life of feeding wildlife, even though that's not something that I like make a habit of, especially Mm -hmm. not as an adult. I've had those experiences. I totally understand the impulse. I totally understand both the impulse from like, uh, we're going to be connected. And also the, I got to help somebody, especially because as humans, we've destroyed so much habitat, right? <laughs> we've destroyed so much habitat. And so the, like letting the animals be natural almost feels impossible because how can a deer, for example, be natural on a road? Yeah. Or how can these animals survive in a habitat that's just so altered? Don't they need help because so many of their natural food resources are gone. And I think that's something that plays into my mind as I got older, when I see animals in trouble. Um, but I think that you've done a really nice job of pointing out that there are negative impacts, even when we're trying to do good, even, even if you're just leaving out a food tray, instead of just like you having that one-on-one experience, knowing that it impacts their social interactions with each other. It's, it's something that professionals only do in very specific circumstances and they try and do it as little as possible because we do know that they have those sort of consequences. So nice job, Sarah. Thanks for bringing up all these points. Well, thanks for your discussion. I think that last one was a really good point too, in terms of a motivator that we didn't really discuss is that, yeah, some people do go into it for that reason. Like we've caused so much damage. Like we've taken away these animals, natural ranges or whatever. So they want to, to feed from that standpoint, which again is a noble thought, but I think we still have to realize that it has these, this sort of cascade of right negative. Uh, I, I think it's always important to evaluate the difference between your motivation and the actual outcome of something. So is, if your motivation is helping and the outcome is hurting, is your motivation actually assuaging yourself of some sort of guilt of damaging habitats? Right. At, at the end, if it's not meeting your motivation's goal, then maybe that's n- not a reason to do it anymore. Yeah. So moral of the story, stick to those signs. Please do not feed the wildlife. Don't do it. Uh, and when we come back, we'll talk about a couple of specific things that you can do so that you can help not contribute to this issue of feeding wildlife. All right, welcome back everyone. Thanks so much for hanging out and listening to us this week. We're back with our challenges for the week. I've got a few for you that I think are going to be pretty, pretty simple. So the first one, if you want to help not contribute to the problem of feeding wildlife, challenge number one, just don't do it. 
resist. And uh, this is maybe more of a challenge than we think. Like I said, I was very, very tempted with my bird friend uh, to to just, I was like in my, I had like the angel and the, the devil on my shoulders, <laughs> you know, and the, the little devil's whispering in my ear, like what? what's it really going to do? Everybody else is going to feed him anyway. <laughs> Just give him part of a French fry. It won't be that big a deal. Um, so resist. Know that you are not harming that bird by not giving it food. And even, yes, if the next person at the table is going to do it, at least you are not adding to that issue. So just choose not to do it. I think like on, on top of that is reframing. I always think about like, okay, teaching the next generation, reframing a connection with wildlife outside of some sort of exchange. So just because you're feeding the animal doesn't necessarily mean that's the only way to have that connection. Mm-hmm. Observing an animal passively from a distance, even if it doesn't feel quite as personal, we have to put value into those sort of interactions as well. Um, so that it, it's not just like the only way that you, you can experience wildlife is to be as close as possible and to have them deviate from what they're doing naturally. Like there's value in seeing them be themselves outside of a human context. Yeah. 100%. Um, the next couple are just to designed to encourage you to think about some of those ways that you might be passively feeding wildlife. So not necessarily intentional feeding, but other ways that you might still be attracting wildlife to human areas. So the first one is to think about your trash, Try to make sure that your trash is fully contained. If you live in an area where there are bears, or if you live in an area where you know that you've got wildlife getting into your trash cans, see what other options are out there for you in terms of sort of quote unquote wildlife proof trash cans. The other thing that you can do, and this is a thing that I do now, but of course I have to get up at terrible, terrible hours, but is to wait to put your trash out until the morning of trash day. I know this can be a challenge if your trash comes at six o'clock in the morning. uh, So you might have to set an alarm to do it, Uh, but it is really helpful rather than putting your trash out at night where you're going to just give those raccoons a buffet uh, to try to to wait and put your trash out in the morning. So think about that as one area. And then we talked about the bird feeder issue, but again, this is not so much uh, an issue. Well, I mean, both for the birds, but also that other wildlife that might be attracted to your feeders and your spilled bird food and that sort of thing is make sure you're putting appropriate things out in your bird feeders and then make sure that you're keeping them clean and keeping the area clean as best as you can. So whether that's raking up the food from the ground, if you can, um, just monitoring your spillage, making sure that you are helping to reduce the temptation for other wildlife and keeping things safe for your birds as well. Thanks, Sarah. Those are some excellent challenges for us to keep in mind this week. Um, So if you're not in a situation where you might be feeding wildlife and then you say, no, thank you, make sure your trash is fully contained. Ours is in the garage, but I would also say that if you've got um, chickens, for example, making sure that their food is contained properly so that there's not disease transfer there um, and making sure that wildlife aren't attracted to (laughs) eating their scraps as well. 
All right. Well, that's what we've got for you this week. Thanks once again. Thanks, Casey, for your discussion and your input. Thanks to everyone for listening. You can find us uh, on social media all over the place. You can find us on Facebook or A Little Greener Podcast. You can find us on Instagram at A Little Greener Pod. Check out those locations in particular this week, at least Facebook. And we are going to try to post some questions for you as we reflect back on the last year and look ahead to the future of A Little Greener Podcast. You can also find us on Twitter at a greener podcast and you can email us at a little greener podcast at gmail.com thanks for listening everybody let us know what you think for our 50th episode slash one year anniversary thank you sarah i would have never done this podcast if it weren't for you and so i am eternally grateful for that and this experience and this extension of our conservation education journey but yeah. I will, I'll save all the, the gushiness, I guess, for the 50th. So thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs> Have a good week. Bye. Bye.